Hi there, this is Eric's Antoine, and I'd like to welcome you to a new podcast called The Simpsons Countdown. On this first episode, I'm joined by my good friend Jason Pollock, and we will be discussing the original Simpsons Christmas special, which aired 30 years ago today, on December 17, 1989. And so, yes, this marks the official 30th anniversary of The Simpsons as a television series. But before we get to the meat of the podcast proper, I thought it would be a good idea to do a little intro here and explain the premise, or at least the general intentions of this podcast, and what I would hope might differentiate it from the 7,000 other pieces of Simpsons-related content you can find scattered around the internets. So let me backtrack just a little bit. I'm a Gen Xer in his early 40s, which means I was born in the late 70s, experienced childhood throughout the 80s, and came of age in the 90s. Like most young people of my generation, I was absolutely galvanized by The Simpsons when it began airing at the very dawn of the 90s, and remained a pretty steadfast fan of the show throughout the decade that followed. I watched it religiously, on a weekly basis. It was appointment television on Sunday or Thursday nights, and then, during recess at school, I would discuss the latest episodes with my friends, and we would quote back our favorite jokes to each other, etc. I had a few toys, though I was already outgrowing toys by the time The Simpsons came along. But yeah, I played the video games, I had a bunch of the magazines, the comic books, the tie-in books, etc. I was a fan. I still am, in a way. That is to say, I still consider it one of the greatest television shows of all time. Certainly one of the greatest comedies the United States film industry has produced. And, even if you're not a particular fan of it, I think its significance in the cultural sphere is undeniable. But in all fairness, I haven't actually watched it on a regular basis for almost 20 years. As the 90s gave way to the aughts, as my life became more, let's just say, complicated, my viewing of the show became more and more sporadic until it just about ceased completely. I think the last time I saw several episodes in a row was around 2001 or 2002. I was, of course, excited when the movie came out in the summer of 2007. That was probably my last hardcore bit of fan engagement with The Simpsons. I was already living in Bolivia at that time. I knew the film would open theatrically here, but I also knew that it would open dubbed into Spanish. I wanted to see that movie on the big screen, but I didn't want to watch it in Spanish. This is a personal opinion, but I happen to think The Simpsons is kind of terrible in Spanish. I won't go into why, at least not right now. And I know there are plenty of people in Latin America who would disagree with me, and that's fine. And I mean no offense. My point is, so determined was I to see The Simpsons movie on the big screen and see it in its original language of English, that I mounted a campaign to collect signatures for a petition letter, which I would present to the local distributors here, to ensure that there would be at least one showing of The Simpsons movie subtitled rather than dubbed. I got something like seven or eight hundred signatures. The distributor would have been satisfied with half as much, they said. And the Simpsons movie played in a major La Paz movie theater, subtitled, for six engagements. That was probably the last piece of Simpsons-related content that I took any active interest in viewing. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I thought it was a fun movie, appropriately cinematic, and I also remember thinking that it would have made for an appropriate series finale of sorts. Maybe let the show finally end. 
on a relatively high note. And maybe we get the occasional big screen spectacle and leave it at that. There were certainly more than enough episodes by that point to ensure that at any given time, The Simpsons could be airing somewhere. And now, more than a decade later, there are even more episodes. So that possibility is basically all but ensured. But the thing is, I know. I've heard from many people, both in person and on the internet, that the show, this show that I was such a big fan of, that I considered the best thing on television throughout the 90s, I've heard that this show sucks now. And that it has sucked for a very long time. And you know what? I don't doubt it. Because as I said, I hadn't watched it myself in some time. But then, a couple of years ago, on a lark and out of curiosity, I sat down to watch a Halloween episode, whichever one it was that had William Friedkin, the director of The Exorcist, French Connection, and To Live and Die in L.A., among many other films, as a guest star. He played a family therapist or something in one of the segments, I don't remember. All I remember is that the episode was not funny. I remember that it was, in fact, terrible, painful to sit through. So yeah, it seemed that the general narrative that stipulated how this show was no longer good, well, it seemed that this was correct. I don't tend to fall in with the hive mind narratives of the internet. But in this particular case, I had to concede. And then I subscribed to Disney+. Plus. This is not at all an elaborate plug for Disney+. First of all, they hardly need my endorsement. But my point is, with Disney+, I now had access to all 30 seasons of The Simpsons. All 700 or however many episodes there are. But in 30 years, I figure it has to be at least that many. All of The Simpsons was now at my disposal. And so, I made the decision to actually go back to the beginning. Just watch the whole thing my own pace from the start. Go through those classic first seasons, relive some of those great moments of incredible comedy and social commentary, and then see for myself. Pinpoint the exact moment at which it began to go south. And then it follows. Why do this alone? And why not have a little fun with it? And that is the premise of this podcast. An attempt to trace the creative evolution of the show from the very beginning and find the moment at which it began to suck. Was it a specific episode? Was it a series of episodes? Or was it a whole season that just sucked? Let's find out. That's why it's called The Simpsons Countdown. We're counting down to the creative Armageddon of The Simpsons. Like most podcasts of this nature, I will have a rotating panel of guests, and we will talk about an episode, but we won't only talk about The Simpsons, and we won't only engage in critical analysis on an episode-by-episode basis. There are already podcasts that do this, and they do it well. I'd rather take a different approach here, because as I said at the top, this show was born in the 90s, and as such, it is kind of a perfect time capsule, a perfect artifact, if you will of the pop culture landscape, the zeitgeist of the 90s. It was produced by liberal boomers and eventually Gen Xers, reflecting on contemporary life and culture and commenting on it. So the episodes can actually serve as great springboards for general discussions about a wide variety of topics. And ultimately, that's what I would like to do here. I'd like The Simpsons Countdown to serve as a chronicle of coming of age in the 90s 
and of the cultural zeitgeist of the era. As anything, I don't doubt this podcast will experience its own evolution, its own growing pains, but in any case, these are the intentions. Now, as you will see from this first episode, we don't quite get there yet, but I'd say it's still a spirited and hopefully engaging little chat that listeners can enjoy while commuting, or hitting the gym, or sitting on the toilet, or however it is that one chooses to enjoy their podcasts. As this thing evolves, I'm sure it will become better and more interesting, and I hope, if I've got you this far, you'll stick around. And now, with the preamble out of the way, Jason Pollock and I will discuss Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire, also known as The Simpsons Christmas Special, which first aired on December 17th, 1989. All right, well, uh, how's everybody doing? Um, I'm here with uh, my good friend Jason Pollock, and uh, we're here to talk about The Simpsons in this inaugural pilot episode of The Simpsons Countdown. We used to talk about political issues and very important things, but now we decided that we're going to talk about The Simpsons. So, you know, uh, it is what it is. How are you doing today, uh, Jason? I'm doing all right. And as, as far as I'm concerned, I think The Simpsons, you can actually you can actually drag some politics and very important things. I think a bunch of lefties making a cartoon show on the Fox network is inherently political. Actually, we can just start off this conversation like this, because you just you just brought up the Fox network, and The Simpsons was one of the like flagship shows of the Fox Network, and at that time, like, I, was it already Fox, or was it still, like, just a syndicated? It was never syndicated, it was always Fox. For three seasons, I want to say, of the Tracy Ullman show, which was a, a Fox show, Matt Groening created The Simpsons for, for interstitial content, because he didn't want to use characters he created for his his comic strip uh, Life and Hell, right? Because he thought if I use those characters, I'll have to fight for the rights forever because the network will try to lay claim to them. So I don't know who it was connected to The Simpsons or connected to Tracy Ullman or connected to Fox. I don't know who it was. Well, it was James L. Brooks, right? I I, I mean, I'm pretty sure he was the producer yeah. on on Tracy Ullman, and okay, he li- so, yeah. and he liked Life and Hell, you know, and so that that's how he got. Uh, and probably wanted to animate Life in Hell, and mm-hmm. Groening was like, uh, I'm not giving you Life in Hell, but I will come up with something. So he came up with something that had kind of the rough and weird art style, and irreverent, mean-spirited, weird humor, and the sort of the bleak outlook. Right. Life in Hell does not have a, you know, obviously, like a great outlook on on relationships or society at all. I was already familiar with The Simpsons because of Tracy Ullman. It's not like I watched every episode, but I enjoyed The Simpsons on Tracy Ullman. And then I do know that at some point, like on in the Village Voice or something, I must have glanced at one of the Life in Hell comic strips at one time or another. Were you familiar with Life in Hell before The Simpsons showed up? Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. I was uh, going to comic conventions and stuff. I was constantly looking for weird stuff. So I was familiar because you, you could find it in in sort of zine form and I was always in, in and out of like weird comic book shops and bookshops like the stars our destination was a place in Chicago that was really cool for a long time and right and 
so I come in contact with them. You know, you see the little rabbit, and you're like, okay, what's that guy? And then you start reading it, and you're like, this is weird and mean. And I, I'm a fan of weird and mean, typically, so... I was, like, into comics at the time, but I was into, like, weird stuff. And that's not to say I didn't like superheroes, but I was trying to break into comics, and a lot of the time, the jobs you would get back then were, like, you know, oh, hey, look, gory, death, blood, part nine, the reckoning, where, like, some guy in an executioner's mask with a sword or a large knife hats a naked chick's head off. I was sort of inundated with weird, poorly drawn, ugly crap. Life in Hell happened to be funny, but it was also, you know, weirdly drawn on purpose. And, and so I think he just tried to maintain the sort of visual look of things, but but give Fox something that wouldn't that he didn't care too much if they if they took the rights from him later. I guess something he had created specifically for Tracy Ullman. So ultimately, whatever. And so that was kind of why The Simpsons, especially the the Tracy Ullman stuff appealed to me early on like obviously fox being pretty nascent then standards of practices was not as stringent as it was at other networks because they were they were looking for an angle to generate sort of you know at the very least some interest so if they were a little racier and a little more ribald than than other networks that's that's where you get married with children a relaxed standards and practices thing werewolf what's that werewolf remember that show I think being really out of ideas is where you get werewolf, but we're already off on a bad, not a bad foot. If you like, it's minute five and you've invoked werewolf. Yes. Well, we're talking um, about the Fox Network in the early years, and I mean, but the thing is, like back then, the Fox Network. I mean, now we, we think of Fox as in Fox News, but it's a different thing. Fox News and the Fox Network are two different things, and I think that it's yeah, they, important to make that distinction. Yeah, but, but News Corp is News Corp. Sure. And, and Fox News may not have existed then, but that was a bunch of, you know, that was a bunch of lefties working on that show who realized they were working, you know, for a company. The, the, guy, the guy who's sending their checks is a notorious righty. You know? Yeah, they were working for Satan, basically. And so, you know, if you can... If you can stick it to the man in that context, as as much as you could stick it to the man, and I guess that's getting ahead of myself maybe, but that's why when we talked about me being involved in this, I was like, yeah, well, I'm not the biggest Simpsons fan. Probably by the fourth season or so, I just kind of, it had become just so ubiquitous and so everywhere that I was just kind of like, okay, I'm good. Right. I'm good. You'd had your fill. Right, especially when, you know, as a guy who liked weird comics and a guy who liked animation, you know, you see The Simpsons and they're they're really ugly on the Tracy Ullman show. They don't have the polish that they have even in the first year of this of the series, which is saying something because the first year of the series looks horrific. It's so shocking and- watching them now. Especially if, if, like me, like you hadn't seen those episodes in a very long time because it's not like they air them all the time. Just seeing it now, years later, after I'd gotten used to what The Simpsons became, seeing these rough early episodes, it's like, ugh. I mean, there's a certain charm to it, though, at the same time. Oh, yeah, it's funny. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, it's funny in the way that so many kind of weird, low-budget, no-budget animation projects are, whether it's, you know, Beavis and Butthead or, I don't know, it feels pretty unsung. It feels like nobody even remembers what I'm talking about, but I loved 
Dr. Katz, professional therapist, <laughs> on Comedy Central, back when it was Comedy Central. Yes. And uh, that was literally like the style of The Simpsons animation kind of stripped down to nothing. It's like, okay, we're not so much animating these characters, we're just going to make them kind of wiggle awkwardly, and yes. that's that's what we got. So, but yeah, it's, it's really rough. I... I wanted to kind of reacquaint myself with the holiday special because I knew we were going to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's an overhead shot of Homer's car pulling into the parking lot <laughs> when he tries to go get his uh, his Santa job, <laughs> and he parks in between two cars. And the car at the top of the screen is literally like the most vague pencil sketch color added to it. I was like. Holy shit! And the thing of it is, like the other cars are kind of fully drawn, but then there's this one that just looks like somebody went. Maybe I'll put one here. I'll do like a light pencil sketch of it. I'm not sure if I'm gonna leave it there. Maybe I'll erase it. But no, it just got left there, and somebody put a swatch of color on it. And holy shit, that got left there. That's it's kind of stunning. Like, and it's at the time, like they had to be Klasky Supo, the people who ended up doing Rugrats. Yeah. Uh, which is not visually dissimilar, but but it was so much more clean, and even The Simpsons got more clean, and so I feel like was it was it getting farmed out? Like was so many uh, animation studios, you know, they do the main stuff and then mm-hmm. they farm out what ends up being called the in betweening to to studios in you know in in, uh, in third world countries. <laughs> right, I believe they did that here. With I think they they sent the animation to some Korean company. Well, I remember. I remember the people freaking out at the idea that when Lisa does her, like, South Pacific tribute to Christmas, her, yes. inter, her like, her dance at the beginning, like, it doesn't look like she's wearing bottoms, because the, the Korean animation studio didn't get how they were supposed to color it. There are, like, four strands of what maybe should be a grass skirt, and she's kind of yellow, and you're like... That's weird. And they just didn't know that they were supposed to animate you know, or color a, a bodysuit on her. Right. So, I mean, obviously the animation had problems. Yes. Obviously it was cheap. Obviously the animation was was rough a lot of the time. And, uh, and, and it was just kind of like sometimes it was... Sometimes it seemed like it was a still frame... And the animated section was just the mouth. Like at one point, it really does seem like you can see in in the mastering the the sort of the you know people are kind of complaining about the way uh, the episodes look on Disney Plus because it, it's not really Disney's fault because I remember reading that Fox had actually started reformatting them uh, to take up uh, widescreen real estate. Let's uh, let's let's backtrack on this one. So right, it's important to note that right now, the Simpsons are available in their entirety on Disney Plus, and they've done something to them technically. They were originally designed to be in a four-three full-screen TV frame, right? Right. And so what they've done is they've they've reformatted it so that it can fit onto a wide onto a sixteen-nine standard flat-screen TV now. Right. You're cutting off the image at the top and the bottom, and there is uh, there are ways you can do that and get away with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this was done, like I said, and people are blaming Disney Plus and uh, 
they're actually they're blaming Disney, but this was actually done beforehand by Fox before long before the sale, and it is not their only instance of doing it. They did the same thing to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That show was shot for four three, but it was shot on film first Super sixteen and then thirty five, not unlike you know Star Trek Next Generation. They were constantly blocking for four three, and rather than doing an artful sort of translation the way HBO did with The Wire where even if it's not your preferred viewing uh, choice, it's been done in a in a smart way where they, you know, they CG'd out C-stands and things like that and they erased crew members who were standing outside of frame. With, with Buffy, Fox just left that stuff. And there's some things that weren't color graded properly, so they shot day for night and they just left the shots day. Ugh. They didn't bother color grading any of it. So Fox has rightly taken some real shit for that. So this was a Fox thing. They they sort of reformatted it. And there's a, there's a there are ways you can do that where you can decide, okay, well, uh, there's a joke happening at the bottom of the screen or there's visual information that's important that's happening at the bottom of the screen. We have to do essentially a pan and scan, but up and down instead of left and right so we can include that important visual information in the frame. Right. And they didn't. They obviously left it like dead center. And there's stuff sometimes happening at the top of the frame that's missed. And sometimes there's stuff happening at the bottom of the frame that's missed. When I was watching the first season and there's uh, the episode where uh, Bart Bart cuts off the head of the statue of the founder of Springfield. Right. When they're staring up the clouds, one of them says, oh, that looks like a guy with a knife in his back. And the way the cloud is floating, it's so high on the screen that you can't actually see there's, there's, that there's supposed to be a knife in in its back. Oh, God, that's like, horrible. Anyway. Thank God right. for my so, DVDs. What's weird is, I don't know, you know, Disney really wants Disney Plus to be successful. Yes. Uh, some of the transfers, some of the, uh, the masters uh, that they made transfers from uh, of some of the older films look surprisingly nice. Maybe if enough people feel, maybe if enough people complain, they will take it back to 4-3. Or, or at least give people the option. Maybe there's a way sure. yeah. where somebody can be like, all right, you know what? I don't want to watch it like this. I want to watch it in 4.3. I'll pick the 4.3 sure. option. Boom. Because I, I'm, I can't be 100%. Someone can correct, uh, can correct me on this if, if not. But I do believe that before it was streaming on Disney+, Plus, it was streaming on some Fox-related streaming service. And right. if I'm not mistaken, I think, yeah, they were already doing the 16.9 thing there. But I believe yep. there you had the option. Oh, did you? I, that's okay. what I heard somewhere. I could be totally wrong. I've never used that service. But if there's a way where they can actually have you, like you can actually toggle between 4.3 and 16.9, like I think that would be acceptable. I'd accept that. You know, because, okay, fine. Some people don't care. They want to watch it in 16.9. It's there. Whatever. Yellow. Marge, please. Who's this? May I please speak to Marge? This is her sister, isn't it? Is Marge there? Who shall I say is calling? Marge, please. It's your sister. No. So yeah, we're we're discussing the 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 first episode, the the pilot episode, which is the Christmas special. I believe that wasn't the intention originally. I believe it was the one that they ended with, which is I think it's called Some Enchanted Evening, and it's the one about the babysitter. And if I'm not mistaken, that was the one that was supposed to be the, the first episode. But I I believe the animation, like they they got back a, a like a a test of it, and it was so horrendous that they had to like reanimate the whole thing and obviously it wasn't going to be ready in time for the launch date 
So they said, okay, we'll we'll just go with the Christmas special, you know, and, and we'll and they because it was supposed to launch, I believe, in September, and then and, and because they had problems, the Christmas episode was supposed to be like episode six or eight. So yeah, exactly. It wasn't supposed to be the first episode, but because they had to right. like delay the release, they ended up launching it uh, with the Christmas episode. But what I remember, see, like at the time, I wasn't aware that I mean, I just knew that there was the Christmas special coming. You know, back then we didn't have internet, uh, fan scenes. Right. I was familiar with The Simpsons, uh, you know, um, from Tracy Ullman. And I do remember that there was this one short where they're trying to take a family portrait, uh, if you recall that one. And, Vaguely, yeah. And that was like on a video cassette for some movie. I don't know if it was like Die Hard or, or the, it was some movie. And it opened with like that short at the, at the front of the movie. And where they're basically fighting because Lisa and... Bart are screwing around and not taking the the photography seriously. Exactly, and and like I remember, like that short. Maybe it was even released theatrically or something. I don't know. But because the animation in that short, I do remember it being a little bit better than on Tracy Ullman. It was like it was slightly slicker, like better. And then you know we have this Christmas special, and so I was already familiar with The Simpsons. I was like, oh cool, a Christmas special of The Simpsons. I'll watch that. But at the time, I don't remember knowing that there was going to be a whole show. I remember thinking it would just be like a Christmas special and that's it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I remember like I remember watching the special too and I don't I don't know if I knew a series was coming. Right. Because the the um the actual series I think didn't get started till January or something. It it didn't it didn't it's not like the very next week you had a new Simpsons episode. Right. If I don't, like the, the like this this aired on December 17th, 89. And then it was like at least three or four weeks before something else came, if I, if I recall correctly. So I'm pretty sure that the, the actual show didn't launch till January. The thing about The Simpsons that made it unique, I mean, the, the, the Christmas special thing wasn't unique because by that time, like here's something we, we can discuss. Growing up in the 80s, holiday specials were ubiquitous. <laughs> I mean, they, they, we, they, there was a holiday special for everything. There was Garfield, Charlie Brown... You know, obviously the classic ones like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and, you know. Um, but the point is that every year they would show the same ones, right? And and I don't know. I mean, TV as we know it no longer exists. But uh, I've never really tracked this to know if the Simpsons Christmas special became a standard holiday special that they would repeat on a yearly basis. I don't think it did. And I think that probably one of the reasons was... It was always a way to do another, you know, holiday episode, and and The Simpsons. It seems like it, more than anything, they embraced Halloween. Oh yes, that uh, became their tradition. Yes. So yeah, so so but you know, and that's that's it's saying something that I had kind of I was like, yeah, I you know I've had my fill of The Simpsons. I'm done, but I would still come back every year to see what they did with Treehouse of Terror. Oh, yeah. Because yes. you knew it would be something, like, really demented. Like, and they would try different things, like 3D and CG, and, you know, they were they were doing, and strange live-action stuff. Like, they were trying to do, like, really inventive, interesting things, probably because it did not take very long for that to become sort of a traditional thing, and they knew that it would end up with the biggest ratings of the season. <laughs> so they would they would fill it with with something like really sort of really worth seeing and then really worth talking about. Right, that that became a big tradition and I think for them it became I mean, 
we'll eventually get to those and we'll, we'll talk about them in more detail. It was the sort of thing where they did one of them and then they realized we're going to have to do one of these every fucking year. And they, as I understand it, those are the hardest ones to write. They're like the hardest ones to make. It's like they, it's like they work on them almost a year in advance because there's so much work that goes into making them, or at least there was, I don't know any, I mean, I haven't seen the show in like 10 years or more. There's so much work that goes into making them that they plan them like months in advance and like, like they have to make them unique each time out and come up with new right. things and yeah. But the, the thing is that the Christmas special in and of itself, it's, it is pretty much, if you take it independently from The Simpsons as a series, it kind of works. Watching it again and paying attention to this, it kind of works, I don't know if you agree, but it kind of works independently as a standard Christmas special. You know, oh, absolutely. Like, let's say there were no Simpsons series, and, and just like every comic strip character and just like everything else had their little, like, Christmas special, so they made a Simpsons Christmas special. And if you were to just look at that as an independent half hour, it's got all the hallmarks of, oh, yeah. of, yeah. of what you expect. It's a, it's a heartwarming uh, Christmas story, um, but that is true to the nature of what The Simpsons is. So it has that irreverence... Um, that you expect from it, which seems a little bit quaint now, but at the time it was like, ah, oh, this is kind of pushing some buttons. You immediately notice, like, it's got smart writing. You know, it's it's, it's clever, it's well-written, it's witty. It's obviously written by, by good comedy writers. Like, it wasn't written from the mentality of, this is a cartoon for the family. It was like, this is a comedy special. This is a comedic sitcom Christmas episode. And they treated it that way. And, and, and so it has, like, that kind of smart, clever writing, but it also has, you know, the, the heartwarming aspect, which it, it, it goes there without being too schmaltzy. And, you know, despite what we, what we were saying about the, the rather crummy nature of the animation, the, the, the rough nature then, I do think they, they, they put a little more attention to this one, maybe because it was the Christmas special. Well, but also maybe by that time, like, it is. Like, it's rough. It's crazy rough. But, again, like I said, I think it's the sixth. It was supposed to be the sixth or eighth episode. And by then, they had a, probably a better sense of character than they did originally. And probably got some of the animation down in a better way. So it actually sets sort of a, a tone they can't get to for a while. Like, if you're showing somebody the eighth episode where you've kind of hit a creative rhythm. Mm -hmm. And the animation's coming back and it is a complete total nightmare. And then you go back to like, okay, well, here's episode two. One right. of the things about the, the Tracy Ullman show Simpsons is that they're even uglier than the first season of The Simpsons by far. Oh, yeah. And Lisa is almost as much of a brat as, uh, as, as Bart is. Like, I remember one of, the, one of the Tracy Ullman shorts is like they're, they're playing like space mutants and Bart puts like a fishbowl or a jar or something on his head, like a glass a glass jar, and uh, he gets it stuck on his head, and Lisa's solution is to hit him in the head <laughs> with, a, with a mallet. And so, like, like, you're literally, you're going to break a fishbowl on his head with a mallet. Like... She's just female Bart, really. Yeah, that's that true. Like, she doesn't have... Like, it takes a while for them to decide to give her, like, this voice of empathy and 
compassion and intelligence because she is like she's very clearly like an artist uh, an artist surrogate character she's definitely some of what the writers are thinking is is coming out of her mouth like like marge is is exasperated by her family and she has she has wisdom to give but it's it's often measured because she's trying to keep the peace Right. And Lisa is sort of a defiant, you know, sort of revolutionary and progressive in her views in, in like, uh, of the way, like, Gloria was on All in the Family. Like, she, she makes her politics known. She makes her, her belief system known. She's smarter than anybody else in the family. But early on, she's kind of Bart as a girl. And in the Christmas episode, she's not Bart as a girl. Right. But then... It, in, in later episodes of the first season, like, before you get to, like, the halfway point, she can be bratty just like he is. And it seems like like what they originally were going for was like, oh, well, these kids are both going to be bratty, you know, mm-hmm. and Homer's going to be kind of dopey, and Marge is going to be a voice of reason. Right. And eventually the character evolves and becomes something a little more than just, you know... A female Bart, which is, I mean, it's good that has to happen, but but you see maybe like some hints of it by the time they get to like the midway point, and so maybe you're seeing a little bit of that in uh, in the Christmas special that's not there when you just kind of watch ep- the third or fourth or fifth episode. You know, like that that is a very good point because obviously when it was on Tracy Ullman, it was just it was just this bullshit cartoon thing for a couple of laughs. Right. They it's not right. like they thought of it in any in any deep way. And just, they're interstitials, and they're trying to be a little anarchic and a little haywire. Right, and then so you, when they decided, okay, we're gonna make a whole, we're gonna have to build a whole series around this. Obviously, they they thought about developing the characters more, and that's where they finally decided to give them distinct personalities. And what you do, you definitely see that in the, in the development of the of the series. The Christmas special was the first one that aired, but you can tell that as they were making them, they really. In the beginning, it was something where like Bart would be the main character essentially, and so the first half, you know, th- there's a whole bunch of episodes where like Bart's the central character, but but then as they started to develop it, they realized that it would make more sense ultimately to make Homer the lead character, really, because there's that gives you more potential to the kinds of stories you can tell. Everybody has to react, even if like it's not that Bart is stupid. Bart is just Bart is just rotten. He's a brat. Right, and so. Everybody is smarter than Homer. Right. So if you make Homer the focus, it becomes everybody cleaning up Homer's mess, which is kind of perpetually what happens. Right. And that and that brings me and that kind of became the formula of the of the show. Essentially it became it started out as this thing where they weren't sure what it was. They eventually developed it so it would be a standard animated sitcom where you have like the you know, the working class dad who's you know, kind of a moron, and he's always fucking up, and people always have to clean up his mess, as you were saying. It is interesting, though, to consider the plot is basically Homer does not get his Christmas bonus. But here's the thing. If you really analyze it, it's not his fault. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, like, look, look, looking at it logically, it's it's not his fault. So, like, in, in most Simpsons plots where, where Homer's involved, he fucks up, and then he has to fix it. In this plot, he doesn't get his Christmas bonus, and then he's, like, not talking about it. You know what I mean? It's like, like, it's not his fault. I'm pretty sure, you know, he shows up at the house, and he's like, oh, thank God for the, for the Christmas jar, or whatever it is. 
for the money jar. And then he sees that it's empty and he's like, ah. And then she goes like, well, but it's okay. We'll just have to stretch your Christmas bonus a little farther this year. And he's like, oh, of course, my Christmas bonus. Yes. And then it's like, why don't you just tell her what happened? You're like, what, why, does, why, why is he the bad guy when it's not even his fault? Why is he, why doesn't he just say what happened? Yeah, you know, that is a, a weird, I think it's probably because it's a long-standing sitcom trope. <laughs> that the dad is kind of the fault of everything. <laughs> right. Like, even, like, Fox's, like, Fox's greatest success at that point was Married with Children. So... Right. You know, if you... It's almost like you can imagine Fox saying, well, it's a sitcom about a middle-class, like, lower-middle-class family, but dad's not very bright. You know, why don't you just animate Married with Children? You know, I see somebody getting notes like that, giving I should say giving notes like that and and so maybe maybe it's just like well we're we're trying to set we're trying to set precedent that the, the dad's dope and you know it's 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 interesting that you say that because it, it kind of gives Homer something that definitely in later seasons he doesn't have and that's a sense of shame well in the first season I think things were still realistic you know, like, like uh, th- this is still, I guess, a realistic story. This is still a few years off from, like, Homer going into space or Homer having, like, a barbershop quartet that somehow becomes a, a very famous band that wins, wins Grammys. You know, like, this is, this is, we're still out, out from that. And I'm not saying that that stuff's bad. That, that stuff, you know, was, was funny in its own way and, and made for great storytelling. But the thing is that in this particular case, I think here they were still trying to make this very grounded and they wanted the plots to all be very, like, realistic and so they, they looked at it like, okay, well, you know, it makes sense. He's a working class guy. He, you know, he doesn't get his Christmas bonus and now he's fucked and he's got to figure out how he's going to provide for his family. And he's ashamed of it. And that's why he doesn't talk about it because he doesn't want to f- feel like a failure because he's got like his sister-in-laws visiting who are always like talking shit about him. So I, I guess there, there's some logic to it, but, but it's good to point out that in this particular case, it really isn't his fault. And, and the, but here's another thing too. It's like, okay. So I'm not, I don't know too much about this stuff, but I'm, I'm assuming, so like the Springfield power plant where Homer works. So I'm going to have to assume that's got to be a union job. I mean, it's quite possible that there would have to be a union job. I mean, it's a, like, it doesn't really make any sense. Like Homer's the only one who seems to give a shit that there are no Christmas bonuses. Like the, the, the boss just comes out and just casually announces like a week before Christmas that there'll be no bonuses. And, and, then, and then everybody's just like, oh, man, or whatever. And I was like, are you kidding me? There would be fucking riots. And, you know, considering the way the town, not just the employees of, of the Springfield nuclear plant, but, but the way the town eventually comes to feel <laughs> about burns, like, <laughs> yes, there would be pitchforks and torches. And that might just, and that's just one of those things where it's a trope with the plot in motion. Uh, you know, they we get to episodes where, you know, Mr. Burns is sort of an Ebenezer Scrooge surrogate. Right, exactly. But but this is like one of those things where it's like, yeah, your totally heartless, miserly boss would pull that shit on you. And yeah, it's interesting that that um, that Homer feels shame for something that is you know, essentially not his fault. My fucking, my motherfucker of a boss. But like I said, it's the sort of thing that would be all over the news. You know, whoever whoever the version, whoever Springfield's version of Jimmy Hoffa is, would be out there. I mean, it would just be chaos so my point is that it is very funny how even in this grounded world uh you have a situation where it's not his fault 
but he's still fucked up. No one else gives a shit about the Christmas bonuses. Or at least, well, I mean, I'm not saying that no one else does, but it's the sort of thing that people would have heard about anyway. So it is funny how, like, it contrives things into being. Uh, ultimately, I do think that it that it it works as a as a heartwarming Christmas special. And having rewatched it now for the first time in many years, I uh, I think it still holds up. I, I don't know how you feel about it. I thought it was uh, I thought it was cute. I thought it was amusing. I uh, I liked Lisa uh, telling uh, telling Marge's sister off. It's almost nine o'clock. Where is Homer anyway? It's so typical of the big doofus to spoil it all. What, Aunt Patty? No, nothing, dear. I'm just trashing your father. Well, I wish you wouldn't, because aside from the fact that he has the same frailties as all human beings, he's the only father I have. Therefore, he is my model of manhood, and my estimation of him will govern the prospects of my adult relationships. So I hope you bear in mind that any knock at him is a knock at me, and I am far too young to defend myself against such onslaughts. It was, it was a very cool thing to stick in Lisa's mouth. It's kind, of, it's kind of the Rosetta Stone for her character. Like, they don't get her there for a while. Yeah, that's true. But when they do, it, that comes out, that kind of thing is exactly the kind of thing she would say and it was really kind of it was neat to see something so early feel so much like the character we know like literally 30 years later you know Mm -hmm. Uh, i thought that was a i thought that was neat and i wasn't quite expecting it because they are early on so different than what they become but yeah it functions as a um as one of those sort of heartwarming little Christmas episodes, and it, it doesn't have the cloying crassness of a lot of uh, a lot of that stuff. So yeah, I wasn't I wasn't offended by it, and you can see the potential in the notion of a series going forward. And so yeah, I I I, I was surprised that it was uh, as um, it was kind of well done as it was considering. I mean, now that they've got the formula, it's very easy to kind of. To look at it and say, well, of course, it was always going to be that way, but was it? You know, it's really weird to to look back at thirty years of something like that and say, yeah, the seeds were there, and they did a good job of of kind of using all of the sort of holiday special tropes, but giving it just enough attitude that it doesn't seem mawkish or maudlin, and it fits in with what the the Fox Network was doing as a brand at the time. Like the idea that the kid in nineteen, you know, eighty nine is getting a tattoo—that was not something. I mean, nowadays your parents, your parents will sign, sign the 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 waiver that allows you to go get a, a tattoo now because it's it's completely acceptable and trendy to do it. My my best friend growing up, his dad, his dad served time, and he uh, he actually had his tattoos were prison tattoos. And he, he had mom on his forearm with the the M's stylized in such a way they were open at the bottom so that when you when he when he rested his hand on his fist, when he turned his forearm the other way, it looked like wow instead of mom. And it was like growing up that was like I knew like two people who had tattoos, and of course now by around 1997, 1998, everybody has a tattoo. So you're watching it now, going like, okay, well, the little kid wants a tattoo, fine. But then you realize, like, in 1989, the little kid wants a tattoo because he's like a hooligan in training. Like, 
And then you realize that Bart shoplifts all the time. Bart does really nasty things in the first season where it's like, yeah, he's kind of, he's kind of a prick. Like, you sort of forget, like, it seems quaint, you know, after a fashion, especially after, you know, Beavis and Butthead come along and South Park comes along. You know, it's like Bart Simpson would shit himself if he ever ran afoul of Eric Cartman. But back then, you're kind of like, yeah, the 12-year-old kid actually goes into a tattoo shop, tattoo parlor and gets a tattoo. And I do love that he, he wants to make it mother because he thinks it'll make, you know, it'll like take the sting, it'll cushion the blow. Oh, Bart, that's so sweet. It's the best present a mother could get and it makes you look so dangerous. So yeah, it's, it's still a little like, it's edgy for the time and a little subversive for the time. Like, things sometimes do get a little nastier in the beginning, in the first season, I should say, but because it's a uh, it's a Christmas episode, maybe they thought they should tone it down a bit and they still managed to, like, you know, make Bart kind of a, a shit. Sure. And fault at the end of the day, it's Bart's, because he goes and does something completely dickish, completely selfish, something he was told not to do, and he has to have laser tattoo removal, and that squanders the entire, like, Christmas savings. You know, Homer Homer feels pathetic, and he feels, you know, he takes the blame entirely on his shoulders, and at the end of the day, it's yeah. really Bart, sort of, which, again, is sort of typical for the show, because, especially early on, Bart, like, obviously Bart was going to be the breakout character, you know, uh, kids, you know, kids are going to have, uh, God, there's, like, in the first season, there's like already Cowabunga, and there's already Don't Have a Cowman, and like all those catchphrases that were going to end up on T-shirts before the first season was done. Yes. And um, and so, like he still, they still find ways for him. They still find a way for him to be a prick in the Christmas episode, even though it's like toned down. They really wanted to push the idea of him being kind of a, a little hooligan, right? But yeah. at the same time, they wanted to make him relatable. Like like you brought up how he. Uh, he shoplifts all the time, whatever. So, so full disclosure, you know, we're, we're both adults here now. Back then, when you were like 10, 12, did you ever shoplift? Uh, I stole, I stole a gremlin. Uh, you mean like, like a gremlin, like a toy gremlin, like from the movies? Yes, I, I stole a toy gremlin. <laughs> I would have been like 10. I don't know why, I just decided that I, well, I mean, I do know why I fucking love gremlins. I don't know why I thought like I would need to take him. I probably because we were poor, uh, and I totally got busted. Like I, I got busted my first time out, and I and I could not have felt uh, more horrified and shamed. And uh, and it really did. It was one of those things that you know sort of put me on the put me on a straight and narrow, as it were. Because man, that was horrible. And I I got grounded, and I missed. I missed going to see Weird Al Yankovic in concert. Um, oh no! And um, and so yeah, I I did, I never stole again after that because, good Christ, like missing out on Weird Al—that's not right. I mean, I did it to myself. Like that's all me. But yeah, I stole a little rubber. It was a little rubber bendy stripe figure. It was like five inches tall from the grocery store when we were grocery shopping. I sort of just casually put him in my pocket and hoped no one would notice. And I totally got busted. See, me, like, I'll, I'll confess this right now. I was a serial shoplifter, but uh, it, was, it was very specific in my case. 
Um, <laughs> I, I would have, like, there, there was a there was a path mark near where I grew up in in Chinatown. There was a path mark, and so on a regular basis, what I would do is I would always steal, uh, you know, the Archie comics, yes. the, the the digests. You know that they had like by the by the checkout those little like digest books, those would be regular. That, that that would be just a regular thing. Like I'd walk in there and just like, I would lift that shit on a on a monthly basis. Like however often they would come out, it wasn't impulse purchases for me. It was like, ooh, there's the new Archie digest. Ooh, it's Betty and Veronica. Oh, it's the double digest. Oh, it's that was me. Like it's like I I had a. Huge collection of um, I, that was the only way that I consumed Archie comics. In fact, I never bought the I never bought the normal ones, like off the comic book racks. I would always just steal the digests at Pathmark, and just like I had like a huge collection. I just had them like in my in my room. You know that that was my that was my bathroom read. That was my breakfast read. That was my like before bed read. Nobody ever noticed that you had like four hundred issues of like Archie lying around. That I suppose they, they did, but. Uh, I, like they, they must have assumed that I was buying <laughs> I was buying them with my allowance like I, I don't know because but you know that shit used to be like a dollar twenty five was a lot of money a dollar twenty five is a lot of money when you're when you're ten years old so I was like I'm not gonna be spending a dollar twenty five on this I'm just gonna put it in the back pocket of my jeans I got busted too early to feel like a life of crime was something I uh, <laughs> I could get away with for very long so yeah I mean I think at the time it was considered edgy it's obviously very quaint now. But uh, at the time, there was an edginess to it. They made a big deal out of the fact that it was going to be a primetime animated show, which is something that at that time was fresh. Like there hadn't been anything like that since what the Flintstones. Flintstones, yeah, yeah. And the thing that I'm that I guess it there's no way for me to have the context for this, but so like the Simpsons was an animated sitcom which was edgier than. Than, than most live action sitcoms at that time, as as I remember it, because the Flintstones is is something that I watched as a kid, when they would show it like in the afternoons or whatever it was reruns, so I'm not you know, I don't know how the Flintstones compared to the primetime live action sitcoms of the of the 60s or whenever it was that that aired. Well, you know, I mean, the Flintstones is very obviously just the honeymooners anyway. Of course, which, except it doesn't have the spousal abuse humor. I was just going to say, the Honeymooners, literally, it's like the catchphrase is to threaten to beat the wife. Bang, zoom. It's kind of amazing. Yes, uh, yes. But you're right, I mean, Flintstones was the animated The Honeymooners. I think it had more episodes than The Honeymooners. I, I think The Honeymooners only ran for like 40. There's only like, there's only like 40 first run episodes or something like that. Or, or It's a really small number is what I know. It's, it's, it's like under 50. It's interesting to consider how in 1989, there hadn't been anything like that since the 60s or whatever it was. And then it was a big deal. It's an animated sitcom. They tried to, to have it compete and with live action sitcoms. It was edgy. And now... The idea of a primetime animated show is, I mean, there's no big deal about that anymore. What right. with Adult yeah. Swim and Comedy Central and yeah. everything else, I mean, forget it. Uh, or something like Family Guy makes The Simpsons look like a Disney show. Yeah. <laughs> and, now, and now it is yeah. a Disney. Yeah, exactly. So is Family Guy. Yeah, technically, yes. That's actually, yeah, that, that's weird. It's not, not that it matters, but like Disney Plus has the entire run of The Simpsons, 
But Disney Plus does not have the entire run of Family Guy. Yeah, that would be true. So I'm, I'm guessing Family Guy's going to be on Hulu or something. Well, anyway. You know what we might want to address before we, we go? I don't know if this was... I don't know if this was your experience with the episode, but something I noticed about the Christmas episode was that the pacing is very strange. It's like a very slow-moving show. And you just you have a sense of The Simpsons because of the comic writers who who are such a huge part of it. You have a, this sense, this this memory of The Simpsons as being very fast-paced. Yes. Like that it's just jokes a jokes a plenty, and it's like just riffing like second after second. But the holiday episode has a sort of has a sort of slow pace to it, and so does some of the other first season episodes. Like they hadn't kind of gotten that like that wise-ass, like, bah, 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 bah. they didn't have the sort of the, Bart wasn't sort of like a, a smart-ass line or a catchphrase a minute. Right. It, it's, it's a very, it's a very subdued pace. Well, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it, like, compared, obviously, to how it went later, the, the pacing in the Christmas special is a little bit more deliberate. And, uh, and I, I believe that that's kind of the case for, um, for most of the first season, I would Looking back at it, it moves much, uh, much more slowly. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if, I wonder if that was concern about uh, how to structure an animated sitcom to do twenty-two minutes of animation and uh, you know have an act structure. Like, what would the audience? Like, I wonder if there was something to be said for like, okay, but now we're doing this. We can't do quick cuts, so I wonder if that was if that was notes. I wonder if somebody said, "Well, you're gonna have to slow this down because you're not gonna do rapid cutting with animation. People get really annoyed, especially since the quality of this animation isn't spectacular. Like there are no quick cuts. There's no like it's it's very no frills, very very sort of flat animation." Well. Uh, Flat, yes, but I do think that at the same time they were trying to give it a certain stylishness, like uh, they they because it was an animated sitcom, so I guess they figured, well, since this is animation, we can take advantage and do stuff that you could never do in live action. Like no no live action sitcom would have a budget that would allow these kinds of things to be done. So we're gonna take advantage and and kind of be more elegant in our storytelling than a than an than a live action sitcom can be. We can have a shot of like Homer driving down the road and looking at you know like slowly while the music plays and you zoom in on his face as he gets progressively more frustrated that he can't find an affordable Christmas tree anywhere. Uh, j- just things like that that I think they decided to take their time and and do a lot of visual storytelling and things that you could never do in live action but treat it like a live action show. In, in the terms of the writing and the characterizations and all of that stuff. I guess, yeah, there's something to be said. That There's some truth to that. You know what is weird, though? You know, we talk about how how the uh, the Christmas episode has a, uh, a more deliberate pace and is a bit more uh, realistic in terms of its characterizations. But when Marge, I did notice when Marge takes... When March takes Bart to have his tattoo removed, yes, the laser tattoo removal system looks like it looks like a satellite. That's sort of a precursor of the weirdness to come, where the show is concerned. Like that looks like some sort of like alien laser set to destroy Springfield, and it's just kind of like, wow, that's that's sort of over the top. 
considering what this show is doing right now. Right. They had their cake and they ate it too. I mean, they, they, they did the whole thing where it, it's a grounded show with realistic characterizations, but, you know, every now and then it's like, well, this is a cartoon and this is right. a parody, so we're going we're gonna to go all the way with this. Yay! Unadulterated pep! Yeah, so, so that's it. That's, uh, that's the Simpsons Christmas special. And that's pretty much all we have to say about it at this point. You know, it, it was revolutionary for its time. It, it's held up as a, as a fun little heartwarming special to watch with the family. And yeah, that, that's, that's it for this episode. If you guys like this, uh, give it a like or subscribe or whatever you're supposed to do. Uh, thanks for joining me, uh, Jason. Always a pleasure to talk to you. I'll, I'll have you on in a, in a couple of weeks for uh, the Telltale Head. I believe that's the one that you want to talk about. The, uh, and uh, that's it for now. So um, we'll see you guys next time.